This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We need a COVID break, don't you think? We absolutely need a COVID break. Well, let's do it. Let's talk about what has been going on in the world of curling because this has been a big week. Well, it's been a big weekend, and we're going to continue to see a big week. Coming off a big victory this morning over a squad from Yukon Territory, we would like to welcome Wayne Tuck and Kim Tuck to London Live. How are the two of you doing? Congratulations. Thank you. We're doing okay, hanging in there. That's good. That's good. Now, the two of you know exactly what it's like to have to climb the top of the mountain at this event because you did it in 2014. When you think about maybe the, the difference in any of the, you know, the other competitions that you've been in, now that we inject this one securely into a pandemic scenario, how has this gone, Kim? What's it been like? Well, actually, it's been going pretty smoothly. Um, we were lucky being the third event in the bubble that Curling Canada had a pretty good handle on how things were going to move and how things were supposed to roll. So things have been pretty good. Um, the scanning daily, we have to do daily temperature scans and fill in um, like health checks, uh, scan in and out of the buildings to make sure we're not going anywhere other than the hotel and the venue. So getting used to those kind of extra protocols that obviously we wouldn't have had at another event uh, took a couple of days. And then the just trying to find some time with only one game a day for us in our draw uh, in the hotel uh, with to do things and, and keep ourselves busy other than curling. <laughs> Because you're basically on the ice or in the hotel room, right, Wayne? It's, there's not a lot of going other places, not a lot of sightseeing. You haven't been in the mountains yet? Nope, nothing. The only thing missing are the bars on the windows. <laughs> and it must feel like that. I mean, that's that's got to be at least a, a little bit challenging. Fortunately, you know, Wayne, you two get along. Uh, this this week was a big task for sure. <laughs> not being able to, to go anywhere and, and uh, you know, uh, hang out with the teams and, and kind of let loose when things aren't going your way. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it is what it is. And, and we've, we've had some downtime and we were able to, uh, after our third test uh, done here, uh, you're able to kind of congregate in the, in the uh, restaurant, six to a table. So at least there's some socializing going on. Yeah, because Kim, that's that's curling. You can't have curling without the social. Yeah, no, it's been good in terms of being able to use the restaurant. Once everybody cleared that third COVID test, then they were allowing the teams to use the restaurant. Um, but again, trying to keep socially distanced and wearing masks at all other times. We do get to go over to the rink and watch. They've got a designated sitting area for all the players. Obviously, masks are required, but we can go back and watch some of the draws if we want to. So that's kind of nice, too. Kim and Wayne Tuck joining us from the Canadian Mixed Curling Championship in Calgary. Uh, Wayne, let's talk about mixed doubles and the fact that this really has become a fun part of curling. Explain to us so that we've got it down pat. How does mixed doubles work when we compare it to what we would think of in some of the other types of curling? Um, Mixed doubles is a lot more fast paced, uh, a lot more action. Um, You know, you got your men's and women's normal, normal, normal curling 
play, and then you got mixed doubles where you start with two rocks in play. Uh, can't take any rocks out of play for the first three rocks thrown, and then uh, by that time there's about four rocks in the in the forefoot. So you know it's nonstop action, and and like I said, you, you can't blank an end or you lose a hammer. So uh, there's no, uh, it's not as boring as as four person. <laughs> and Kim, what is it that you like about it? Um, I like the fast pace of it. Um, I like that it's an hour and a half game. Um, I like that it's something you can that I can do with Wayne. I like the mixed combination of it, and I think that's something that you know we'd like to see more on TV, more um, you know popularity, and just showcasing that mixed combination. Um, I like the fact that it takes skill, and um, you know it's something we've gotten pretty good at over the years. But I definitely prefer it. Uh, over the four person now having played it you know more significantly over the last few years kim and wayne tuck joining us from calgary at the canadian mixed doubles curling championship wayne let's go back to today you mentioned you know it's been a, a bit of a tough start you didn't pick up victories in in your first few however there you go up against the representatives from yukon territory you head into the final end down one what happened well, we actually had a shot for one in seven, uh, but we decided to uh, to end up giving uh, UConn the points so that we could retain Hammer in the eighth end, uh, and you know played a, a, a somewhat of a decent end. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, Bailey, the the the, the girl on, from the UConn, uh, just missed her last shot and gave us the shot for the win. So it actually came down to a measure. Uh, so it was kind of a win-win because if you know. We don't win the measure. We tie, uh, but we play an extra end, but it's on TSN. So they finally show an end of us, uh, <laughs> you know, so but we, ended up winning, we ended up winning the measure and, and winning the game. So that was, that was good. On a pressure shot, no doubt. So you've got a victory and now you've got the rest of the day to, well, do what you've been doing and hang out in the hotel room. And then what is next in terms of draws for the rest of this week? So we have one more draw left in our uh, round robin play, and we play uh, Jennifer Jones and Brent Lang tomorrow at 11:30 our time. So we're looking to try to put some games together. It's been a bit rusty, obviously, just not having any kind of a curling season this year, and and then just with that one game a day, it's hard to try to get your feet under you quickly. Normally in this event, it's played on eight sheets of ice, so we're usually playing three games in a day, so it's a little bit more drawn out. So it's been a bit harder for us to kind of get some stuff moving, that's for sure, get going. Wayne, does it help that you can really get uh, at least a history of Jennifer Jones and Brent Lang? If you wanted to break down some video, you could break down video on, on both of them all day long. They've both been out there at so many different championships. Going up against them, what is that like? Why not? I know Brent really well. Um, you know, it's always it's very actually when we play them, it's very light. Uh, he he he's he's a ride on the ice. Uh, it's not as serious as as uh, some of his other games, but you know, they're great players, they're great shooters. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's the same with all the other great shooters too. Uh, when you play mixed doubles, it's a little different. You don't have your your two sweepers to to make your shot, and you don't have uh, a lot of people on your team to, to kind of bounce off times and weights and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's a little bit of an equalizer, but, you know, they'll have, they play well, and, and if we can play well, we'll have, a, we'll have a great game against them. 
Well, good luck with that because, again, the two of you have won this event going back to Ottawa in 2014. Kim, take us back to that moment and, and what that was like. What do you still remember from that? Um, well, the biggest thing was we had a disastrous last end and the other team was actually setting up. We were up four, I think. And I was just, I had thrown my last shot and Wayne thought it was okay. And I wasn't sure. And they actually had a shot. It was a really, really low percentage for five to win. And I was just, I remember standing at the backboards and turning in like, I can't watch this because if we give up five and lose this, I'm just, I'm just going to be into my, my curling career. So luckily, uh, you know, it was a tough shot. Uh, and she didn't make it. So we ended up uh, going on to win. And then I think it was just the shock of, of that that actually had happened. Um, and then the, you know, curling Canada, Jim Waite was, was our coach at the time with that and you know he coming in and then having to answer a whole bunch of questions and and you know all the all the stuff that follows along and then it was three weeks till we had to leave so it was get your passports in order get everything else like that in order you know call home to let them know guess what you know we won and now we need two more weeks off work and <laughs> so all those kind of things but uh, I remember being probably the most nervous I've ever been watching a shot come down the ice for sure. Oh, wow. Well, hey, that one worked out beautifully. You guys have a phenomenal matchup tomorrow. Have some fun with it. Enjoy the fact that uh, at least there's a little bit of normalcy to what's going on in your lives right now, and thank you for providing it for the rest of us. Good luck. Thanks so Thanks. much, Mike. We appreciate it. That's Kim Tuck and Wayne Tuck. Team Tuck. Representing this area, they qualified and are at the Canadian Mixed Doubles Curling Championship right now in Calgary, Alberta. And tomorrow, take on Jennifer Jones and Brent Lang, and then we see what happens and where everybody is. Because there's, there's five groups out of this to pull standings from, so it gets kind of muddled or five pools i suppose is the way they, they've got pool a b c d and e and that's how they pull the next out for the qualifying round so you have to see where everybody's standings are at the end of everything today is lynch syndrome awareness day it's march 22nd and today does its best to draw attention to hereditary colorectal cancer syndromes. And this is something that a great friend of the show, Rob Maddock, has really advocated for over the last few years because he has Lynch syndrome. And his daughter has Lynch syndrome. And we had an opportunity to speak with both of them to tell their family's story. Think about it this way. If you knew you had a gene that predisposed you to certain types of cancers, that would allow you to be more proactive than you otherwise would have been. At the same time, it also gives you a lot of questions if you have the ability to pass this gene on to your own children. We spoke with Rob Maddock and Rebecca Blake about Lynch Syndrome on this Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day. And Rob took us back to when he was first diagnosed with cancer at the age of 28. 
Yes, uh, that's correct. Uh, way back when, in the, the grand old days of 1995, I was diagnosed with, uh, with colon cancer, of all things, which, uh, I, I mean, you don't expect to get diagnosed with colon cancer at the age of 28. People think it's an old man's disease. And so did you immediately say, why did this happen and begin looking at something that ended at Lynch syndrome? Or was Lynch syndrome even talked about in the mid-90s? No, we, I didn't even find out that, that this genetic makeup that I have even had a name until, until four years ago. So, uh, you know, I, I was having some, some issues at work and, and we were just new to London at the time. And um, we didn't, I didn't have a family doctor. I, I broke down to my employer at the time and I said, you know, this is what's going on. And, uh, and she said, you need to see a doctor right away. So she got me set up with a doctor and they didn't suspect any, you know, thought maybe, you know, hemorrhoids or whatever. And just kind of on a whim, they said, do you want to see a gastrointestinal surgeon? Cause they couldn't find anything wrong with me. And I said, yeah, sure. Let's, let's go. And then, uh, kind of in that process between, between my, after my colonoscopy and awaiting the results, um, I spoke to my mom and she said, uh, she said, I, I said to her that, you know, they asked about family history of cancer. And I said, I didn't really know of any. And she says, well, your grandmother died of colon cancer and she had it twice. And that was before my diagnosis. And then within a few days, there was my diagnosis. So when you received that diagnosis, again, you know, there's a family history, but you don't know anything about Lynch syndrome. So how did that even come into your life? How did you even find out about Lynch syndrome? Well, I actually got a phone call from from uh, genetics department at LHSC because I mean they thought it was kind of I don't want to say they thought it was odd, but I mean genetics was was right on top of this sort of stuff. And they uh, a 28 year old patient uh, with with colon cancer came across their desk, and they're like, "We need to we need to dig into this a little bit more." This was about three or four years after after my diagnosis, and and they came to me and said, uh, "Would you be willing to uh, to uh, to submit uh, have your tumor?" Because they, they, I guess they keep that sort of stuff on file. Would you really willing to submit your tumor for, um, for, for assessment for this genetic uh, concern that we've got? And they said, yeah, sure. And uh, my brother, my sister, um, my aunt uh, also uh, submitted blood tests uh, just to see if, if they may have this, have this genetic makeup, genetic genetic issue. And uh, and lo and behold, they they found that yes, there's a a genetic thing. Uh, that, that predisposes me to, to certain cancers. My, uh, my brother carries the gene. My sister does not. Um, my aunt, uh, thankfully, doesn't. So my cousins didn't have to worry about getting, getting routine scopes. But um, even, even at that point in time, I didn't know that it had a name. It wasn't, wasn't until my diagnosis, uh, my second diagnosis of colon cancer uh, in 2017 that, that the, the doctors at Princess Margaret told me that uh, you qualify for, for this immunotherapy treatment because you have Lynch syndrome. I'm like, oh, okay. So it has a name. Rob Maddock joining us. Rob's daughter, Rebecca Blake, is with us. We'll talk with Rebecca in just a minute. At the time, Rebecca was a lot younger, two children. You find out that you are a carrier of the gene. What's the first thing you think about with regard to your own children? 
it, it's it's scary, and especially I mean, Rebecca was four years old. Uh, our son Josh was just turning six. So I mean, you just you just don't know. There's there's a lot of unanswered questions, and uh, I mean, the first thing we asked is, okay, well, do the kids have it? And and the uh, they told us at the genetic department that well, we don't we don't know, and and legally we can't find out until until they're able to tell us that they that they want us. So you know, they got to be age of consent at eighteen before they can before they can get checked. So I mean. For for us, we 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 knew that there was a possibility. I mean, there's not much you can do at that point in time. So we just, you know, we lived we lived our lives. And when the the, the kids certainly uh, certainly knew from a from a young age kind of what was going on and stuff that I'd gone through. Um, so by the time they were 18, they they were able to uh, to make an informed choice. Rebecca, take us back to that moment. I mean, you've got a great family, open family, lots of discussion going on, but. You hit 18 and you have the opportunity to get a test to say that you may carry a gene that predisposes you to certain cancers. What is that decision like for you in, in trying to decide whether or not to have the test to even know if you have the gene? Um, honestly, like it wasn't really that much of a, a thought process for me. Like I think because we were so open with it, talked about it our entire lives we knew this was coming and to me knowledge is power so i would so much rather know what my future could be and the things that i can do to prevent or screen properly in order to make sure that you know i'm living my best life and here as long as i possibly can for my future family at that point there was no children but um it it wasn't really much of a thought it was just like okay i'm 18 let's go, let's get this test done and let's figure it out because it's either going to be, I get lots of tests or I'm okay and just have to start testing a little bit later because it's still a family history. But um, yeah, there wasn't too much of a, of a thought. I know for some people it's hard to make that decision, but it's not a death sentence. It's just uh, an ability to get the, the screening and stuff that I need. You so. get results of a test. Those results sometimes are really hard to hear. Yeah. Take us back to hearing the results of this test. Yeah, that for sure wasn't easy. Um, it's still not easy to, to know that you've got this kind of floating around inside you and that you can pass it on to your children and stuff. But um, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it wasn't easy to hear. But I think the, the worst part about it was, and now seeing it again, is just seeing my dad's reaction to it. Like, I feel like he feels guilty that we shouldn't. You can't control your genes. It's not, you know, I've got my mom's bad eyes. I've got my dad's bad genes. <laughs> it happens. Um, but You have decisions to make at that point. And the decisions are, hey, do, do I go on and, and do everything I want to do? Do you, you know, all of us can find a lot of reasons to go down in the deepest, darkest part of the basement, curl up and never come out again. You didn't do that. You have a family. Yeah. So there, there was the option. I believe that we could have done IVF to ensure that my children don't have the gene. I didn't see that to be necessary. It just seems like a major expense when just in general, the, the medical side of it is improving so much. Like if my dad was at this stage in his cancer, back in the 90s he'd be dead now but now he's alive and well and probably healthier than i am <laughs> i guess um 
And so to know that by the time, you know, this affects my kids, there could be a cure because of the Princess Margaret Foundation and other foundations that are doing so much research. And I just, I wanted them to be the children that I was intended to have and not just pre-pick them. <laughs> Can I add to that, Mike, a little bit? Sure. Um, the, the thing is, I mean, there's a lifetime risk for anybody of, of 50% to get cancer. So the, yes, Lynch syndrome means that the, 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 the risk of cancer is, is increased. So the, the colon cancer um, risk alone is, is increased by 85% for people with Lynch syndrome. But you've, again, with that, with that one in two chance of getting cancer in a lifetime, uh, I look at Lynch syndrome, I think Rebecca may look at it as the same way, is you know what, this, this, it's actually considered a bit of a blessing because this is like right on top of, of our screening. So uh, I, I know the, the kids are getting their colonoscopies every, every couple of years. Rebecca's uh, get, every year, sorry. <laughs> Rebecca's getting, uh, getting a lot of stuff uh, uh, checked out because uh, Lynch syndrome does increase the risk for endometrial cancer and uterine cancer and cervical cancer. So the, the, the women kind of get a, get a huge, huge big blow with that as well. So just, uh, just knowing you have Lynch syndrome is, is, it keeps you ahead of the general population, which is really, really good. Rob Maddock joining us, Rebecca Blake joining us. It is Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day, and uh, we're doing our best to make everybody aware. So, Rebecca, you do have a lot of things that you have to do. It's not just an annual physical. You're talking annual colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Yep. So since I was 18, I get to go for an annual colonoscopy. Um uh, annual PAP, which normally people go every three years for at that age. Uh, annual ultrasounds. Uh, when I hit 30, I was supposed to start um, endometrial biopsies, but I opted to have a hysterectomy instead. We were done having children. So just try and eliminate that risk as much as possible. Um, so I do still have one remaining ovary just for hormone purposes. So I've got to go for ultrasounds on that every year. And I believe I have to start mammograms soon as well, but my doctor's pretty on top of letting me know what I've got to do. So knowing <laughs> that, that, that that is there, it is a lot, but at the same time, you're being so proactive. Is there any kind of comfort in that? Absolutely. Like just knowing that uh, getting through my the prep is the worst part of a colonoscopy and anybody will tell you that once you get to the hospital, they knock you out and you don't remember any of it. But um, getting through that, you just know that you're doing it to, to have this comfort that everything's okay because something can be growing in you. I think my dad said his original tumor was growing for years, like years before they found it. And so to know that I get to be checked every year when normal people my age don't have that luxury i guess um if they don't have the gene or haven't been tested for it and to know that everything's clear is such a peace of mind afterwards for sure one of the big lines i like to use is um when it comes to colonoscopy you don't need to have lynch syndrome for this it's it's just anybody who's who's afraid of a colonoscopy is the the prep is worse than the procedure but chemotherapy is worse than both doesn't that say it right there Rob, you have told us on London Live before, your cancer has returned, but as Rebecca says, you are healthier than ever. I mean, you look at the things that you post, the the walks that you're going on, the bike rides that you are going on, and the therapy that you're going through. Can you update us on your current situation right now? Yeah, so I've been uh, I've been in an immunotherapy trial at Princess Margaret in Toronto for uh, for 
over three years now. I started December 2017. Uh, my, my tumor is fused tied to my sacrum, so, so it can't be removed. Uh, um, but uh, my, my most recent scans actually showed that I've got a 49.4% uh, decrease in tumor size. So uh, originally when I was diagnosed uh, in 2017, I was given three to five years to live and I'm I'm uh, already into year four. I golfed 25 times last year. My, me and my buddy J-Dog are going to go out next week. We got word that, that the courses are open. Um, you know, walking 5K a day and, and uh, just, just living life. I'm, I'm able to enjoy my, my family. Uh, my grandchildren, you know, I can still I can pick them up, which is, which is absolutely fantastic because had I not, uh, had I not been a Princess Margaret uh, and, and had this, had this, uh, this treatment, uh, I, there's a very strong chance I wouldn't be here talking to anybody today. Well, yeah. not only are you doing that, you are making sure that we know what Lynch syndrome is because, again, it's one of those things that you might hear it right now. You might be hearing it for the very first time and not know what it is. So, Rob, leave us with that. If we are to say, what is Lynch syndrome and what do we do about it, what do we need to know? So, Lynch syndrome is, is essentially a genetic, uh, genetic condition that affects 1 in 279 uh, people. And uh, knowing it doesn't mean you're going to get cancer. It just means that you've got an increased risk. So as I said, colon cancer, uh, cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, um, uterine cancer. Um, uh, as I said, it affects one in 279 people. Uh, I like to put it in, in these terms. When you go to the John Labatt Center for a sold-out London Knights game, which is, we know is going to happen soon, um, there's going to be 300 people there that, that have Lynch syndrome. Only 5% ever get diagnosed. It's, it's so severely underdiagnosed. So out of, out of those 300 people, I'm the only one that knows that they uh, that that they have it. Isn't That's that what it boils down to. And the test is a blood test? A simple blood test. We'll tell you that, uh, we'll tell you that you've got it. Well, thank so, you to the two of you for, for this moment and the willingness to talk about this, because as we know, if you don't talk about something, nobody hears, nobody knows, and uh, this makes it a whole lot easier to know and hopefully to have people diagnosed so that they can take the proper uh, proper procedures from there. Just got to know your family history. And uh, if you've got a, a family history of, of cancer, go see a genetic doctor. We've got plenty of great ones in the city. It's Thank all covered. You. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rebecca. It's all covered by OHIP. So it's not going to cost you any money either. <laughs> there you go. What a healthcare system when something is free. You know, it might not be the, the free burger at the drive-thru that you sometimes get, but this will save your life a whole lot more than the free burger at the drive-thru. Rebecca, Rob, thank you for doing this and all the best. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. That is Rebecca Blake and Rob Maddock talking about Lynch syndrome, simple blood test, and it can help set you up for additional screenings that could catch something should it happen to affect you in that. So, right now, we have an opportunity to talk not about COVID-19, but about one of the effects of COVID-19. And boy, this has to be a challenge. How do you deal with this? Think about a year ago and what was happening. Everything was at a standstill. We were locked down. We were learning about a virus that we still didn't know a lot about. And while maybe now we've learned a little bit more about it, when everything goes to a standstill, 
certain things that would normally go on in life are greatly affected. And one of those things happened to be surgical procedures at London Health Sciences Center. Joining us right now is the chief medical officer from London Health Sciences Center, Dr. Adam Ducolo. Dr. Ducolo, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ducolo, let's kind of go back to what you had to deal with when everything had to stop to prepare for what could have been an influx of COVID-19 patients. What happened to surgeries at that point? So I, th- thanks, Mike. I think uh, we're going back to this time last year or even a, a few weeks previous to that uh, when the we didn't know much about COVID. Uh, we've learned a little bit since then, as you just mentioned in the, in the lead up to this discussion. Um, and there was directive from the province, but even in advance of that, uh, locally and, and around the province, healthcare professionals and leaders were looking at what needed to be done to prepare uh, for the wave that might hit us, uh, especially having, at the time, looking to Italy and to New York to see what was going on there. So surgeries were ramped back to only those that were the most emergent and urgent happening uh, at the direction of the province uh, around the same time that we were already planning to do so. So when you try and define what is an emergency surgery or what is absolutely necessary, how do you even categorize that? Yeah, so uh, we initially looked at surgeries that were were deemed by the most responsible uh, physician or provider uh, to need to occur within seven days. Uh, We quickly, quickly changed that to 30 days. Um, And so uh, that brought us to Depending on uh, depending on the week, somewhere between thirty and forty percent of um, of normal volumes, uh, at least in those weeks of, uh, of March and April. Uh, we're, and we we're, don't even begin to know or appreciate how many surgeries happen to go on. It's it's tough to know if anybody has a surgery happening unless you happen to know them or unless it's you. But when you're talking thirty to forty percent of surgeries, how quickly did a backlog build? So yeah, every week there was there were cases uh, sort of being added to the list. Um, we know right now that we, uh, if you compare our year over year volumes at London Health Sciences Center, so what we did uh, in the year previous to, to to the year of COVID, so to speak, um, we are about fourteen percent overall less surgeries, or about four thousand six hundred cases. Um, that'd be that's sort of the local, not sort of it is the local numbers at London Health Sciences Center. And so when you look at me- sorry. No, sorry, go ahead. That, that's one way of measuring backlog, is looking at what you would have done the year previous to, to what, what we did during the COVID year. And doesn't that suggest the number when you're talking about 14% less, and yet that's something that's over 4,000 surgeries? So when you look at that number, when you stare directly at it, did you have an inkling that's what it would be? Did you think it might be bigger? Did you hope it would be smaller? Well, we never want to see uh, that number grow, uh, absolutely. And certainly when once we were able to start ramping back up uh, in June uh, or May and June of last year and over the course of the summer, uh, we were able to get to 100 or even higher than 100% of normal operations. Uh, we had to bring it back down again uh, with the outbreak at UH in November. Um, and then, uh, but, but since January, we've been running it, uh, you know, relatively within COVID anyway, high rates, and we're currently, we're very close to 100%, if not at 100% almost all the time. So we're doing everything we can to do as much care as we can safely um, in order to prevent that number from growing any further. 
Dr. Adam Duclos joining us, Chief Medical Officer at London Health Sciences Centre. As we talk about the inevitable surgery backlog, hospitals all over the place are dealing with very similar things, and it's not just in Canada, it's around the world. So, Dr. Duclos, how do you deal with that when you know you were basically working as quickly as you could in years before the pandemic to get surgeries through and done? How do you deal with having to add more in? It's a, it's a very complex problem, and it's certainly not a local one. It is a, it is a provincial, national, international issue. Uh, and our biggest constraints are people, so having enough nurses and physicians and PSWs and physiotherapists and everyone that helps out with getting someone through the operating room um, and, and cares for them afterwards. Uh, so that's one of our biggest constraints is people. The other big constraint is space. Uh, it's been no secret to uh, people of uh, in Canadian healthcare that we haven't had a lot of extra beds around to put people in uh, and care for them after their surgeries. Um, so we have uh, an active group within locally um, as well as uh, regionally and provincially that is looking at how can we uh, how can we provide as much care as safely possible. I would say this isn't a next week problem or a summer problem of this year. This is this will be months, uh, many many months to recover uh, from the the surgeries that didn't happen. If someone is waiting for word on a surgery, is there anything you'd like them to know? Obviously, just finding out the details you've provided for us here, very helpful. But is there anything else that they might need to know that might alleviate some of the concern they have? I would say that their their main point of contact is their uh, is their surgeon, uh, the surgeon's office, as well as their primary care provider, um, who who would most likely have referred them in the first place. Uh, and I would also just like to provide the reassurance that we are doing everything we can to do as much surgery as possible at this point in time, and that when uh, when the date does come for the surgery, that we are keeping people safe uh, within the hospital. Dr. Adam Duclo joining us, Chief Medical Officer with London Health Sciences Centre on the surgery backlog that's built up everywhere, but specifically the one at LHSC. Dr. Duclo, in closing, you mentioned some of the things you've had to deal with outside of surgeries, whether it is an outbreak or a second outbreak or just some of the reorganizing and redeployment that goes on. What do you look at right now as being some of the, the key challenges as here we go toward the end of month of uh, of the second March of this pandemic? The biggest challenge, I think, going forward in healthcare will be uh, our people. We have a staff, uh, a team of people that have uh, worked nonstop for the past year, uh, have done everything they can uh, to provide care, uh, despite, you know, their own fears and uh, being away from their families. Um, and so, while we, we, well, we will need to provide more scheduled services like surgeries, we also need to take care of our people that provide that care. So I do see health human resources as uh, the next big challenge within the hospital system. Uh, and then the, the second large challenge, I think, that uh, as a community we'll need to face is, is the mental health of everybody. Our personal and professional lives have been impacted so greatly uh, by COVID that it's, it will take months, if not years, to recover from this. Well, thank you for the job that you're doing and the updates that you have been providing. This gives us a sense of some of the things that are going on. And please thank everybody who is still doing that work because, you know, we talked about it last week and the week before, a year ago, we were out and banging pots on patios and things like that and having drive-bys from first responders. And all of it was, you know, heartwarming to see and, and great to take part in. But those jobs continue to be done 
day after day after day, whether you know whether we recognize them or not. And and I think too many days, Doctor Ducolo, we don't take the time to recognize what's still going on. And when you do that, sometimes you take it for granted. So please thank everybody involved. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and I'll do my best to pass on the message. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. That's Dr. Adam Ducolo, Chief Medical Officer at London Health Sciences Centre. On first the surgery backlog, but seriously, it's 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 getting long. It's getting tough. There aren't vacations for healthcare workers because it's not like you can say, "Well, just bring in somebody else." You know, just come on. Let's you know. For example, this surgeon maybe needs a, a break this weekend, so uh, just you know, just get another surgeon. You know, just uh, somebody's got to be able to do that no it doesn't quite work that way and we've got really top-end professionals who work in this area and some of those surgeries that you're looking at i mean people are brought here from many different places just to have some of those surgeries and there is still a backlog and as dr ducolo says this is not a matter of days or weeks to get this addressed Everybody's looking at far longer than that. So if you are on a list, stay on that list, stay in touch with your surgeon. And here's hoping we get to a point where we're not worried about anything else. You know what it comes down to? It comes down to not having to have concern over a big influx of COVID-19 patients. And we're not there. We're, we're a year into this, and we're not there. We still have things that are taking place, like that thing over the weekend for freedom, which is risking the health of individuals because it's not following what is being laid out by health professionals and scientists. Seriously, you know, we're a year into this, and really... We're not in a better position. We've got vaccinations happening, but it's uh, it's tough to see that. I'm sure it's it's in a way frustrating for medical professionals to see. Come on, we're not asked to do hard things here. Let's let's just do it a little while longer, and then maybe we're in a much better position in this world. Let's take a break. We'll get you updated on a beautiful forecast for the rest of today and tomorrow, and we are still awaiting the arrival of Ontario Premier Doug Ford. We'll get you information from him at some point this hour in terms of what the province is dealing with. If we look at the pharmacy pilot project that has begun, Windsor, Kingston, Toronto, they're able to offer vaccines for those 60 and above. Unfortunately, you kind of have to go there in order to get one of those vaccinations it's still a pilot project but it at least gets us thinking about what could be happening here and we do apparently have more vaccines on the way we've seen a nice little bump that has amended the way that things have done so you've been listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three 